Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure is great to be back on the air and hard to believe we are halfway through the first uh, full week of April. You know, when I was on the air last, um, I did briefly recall telling you guys about how um, there was going to be uh, the national championship game uh, for Division One men's basketball. Well, as we all know, Connecticut won, but at the same time, uh, given that with Connecticut having won and it was their the program's fifth national championship, I must say San Diego State certainly had nothing to be ashamed of. Yes, David may have uh, come up short in um, beating Goliath. You know, David, being San Diego State, had never made it this far in the tournament, and Connecticut being Goliath, given that they had won uh, more than one national championship in basketball. Nonetheless, it's probably fair to say that there have been times throughout history where David has come up short in trying to um, defeat Goliath, but it doesn't mean that David um, didn't uh, go without putting up a good fight. Well, San Diego State certainly did put up a good fight with Connecticut. They, it, they just ran out of time in the end. But nonetheless, uh, San Diego State um, has a lot to be um, proud of, and they uh, went as they went further than anyone would have um, expected them to have gone. I think it might be fair to say that the majority of us who uh, did brackets for this year's tournament may have picked them to go only into the second round, but they sure did exceed expectations for being a David, to say the least. Well. I am going to tell you all here um, that this next podcast segment episode to the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin is going to be our last um, episode for this uh, book topic series. So we are at the end, folks. We are at the uh, epilogue, epilogue, uh, which is another um, term for end. Can you believe that we have um, now... um, reach the end to another uh, book topic series. I find it hard to believe, but, you know, all series have to have a starting point, but they also have to have an ending point. But that doesn't mean that the door is closed forever. It just means it's time to move on to a new chapter and a new uh, upcoming uh, book podcast uh, topic series that um, that I look forward to sharing Um somewhere not too far away in the near-distant future. So what are we going to discuss in the epilogue to the Boston Massacre of Family History? Well, we really need to talk about... um, We need to talk about how um, everything just started falling apart. What do you mean by everything starting to fall apart? We actually need to... um, explore how certain families, for example, and we're not necessarily talking about families who are, say, in the wealthiest uh, 2% of society, but we just need to take a look at how families were impacted by the massacre, but how the actions and um, the event of March the 5th, 1770, changed various families and how the dynamics of those families evolved uh, within over a course of, say, five years to where either the, either uh, 
a large number of the family members remained intact in terms of where they could put aside uh, differences and still speak to one another, or if some families just completely fell apart, not just because of who they wanted to side with in terms of um, where their loyalties ultimately took them, but whether whether or not they married someone whose uh, loyalties were on the opposite side, which uh, could have uh, often caused the greater uh, split. We'll also uh, discuss in the end about you know uh, something unique that most of you may not know or would like to know, but we will need to learn about um, the five men whom were shot on March the fifth, seventeen seventy. I think it'd be important to know where where exactly they are buried. We also need to know whom ought to be um, remembered as the first uh, person to to die. Five, say five years prior to when shots were fi first fired around the world at Lexington and Concord. But we may also be surprised to realize that it may not have just been one person whom gave up his life. We might be surprised to find out that maybe more than one person should be given uh, credited, or should be given credit, I should say, pardon me, for um, for why for why it would be fair to say that perhaps multiple people ought to be considered, say, the first two or first three whom were, say, the first casualties of an eventual greater conflict. And it's not so much the fact that they, okay, would be the first two or first three, but really it's to teach a better story, a better story behind what we've been talking about this entire time. You know, yes, the Boston Massacre occurred on March 5th, 1770, but not everything happened on March 5th, 1770. And it is fair to say that we um, have learned a great deal about how troops interacted with uh, townspeople when they first uh, set foot on uh, Boston soil in October 1768. I think it's fair to say that we have established uh, the fact that um, many troops did marry um, Bostonian women. Many troops deserted. A lot of things that most of us would never have thought in our lifetime, but yet they did happen. So let's be prepared to get this show on the road and and focus on the first question to the epilogue of the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. So here we go, folks. Is it fair to say that each family residing in Boston grappled with the issue over troop presence for their own manner, or I should say, uh, accord? I believe uh, that the answer to this one is a definitive yes. And it is also fair to say that no family was immune from troop presence. If you want to be immune from troop presence, then I think you need to leave Massachusetts as soon as possible. So yes, no family was immune from uh, troops' presence, but instead, all families were forced into making choices never made previously. You know, think about it. There, was, there would never have been a reason for any family to have to open their homes to quarter soldiers. Not just for a couple of weeks, but for months, 
or perhaps longer than a year. It just never crossed the colonists' minds. But it did happen, folks, most notably in Boston, Massachusetts. So yes, many families were forced to make choices never made previously because it never crossed their mind. It had never happened before. But there's always a first for something. So these uh, choices that had never been made previously before did change social relations for better and for worse. It's kind of like marriage vows. Do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband? And then at the end, you know, for better or for worse, you know, till death do us part. So <laughs> the uh, relations between the soldiers and the townspeople, yes, soldiers did marry Bostonian women. Yes, there were desertions, but it was a marriage. It was a marriage that really was for better and for worse. Although the war, well, I should say, although war, along with peacekeeping, including government administrations, did have the means of bringing people from all corners together throughout the greater British Empire. At the same time, however, those exact forces did the exact opposite by breaking them apart. The shooting on March 5, 1770, sadly represented the first beginnings behind what led to a greater breakdown within family structure, or I should say family structures, which previously enjoyed broad unanimous support amongst the British Empire and her subjects. You know, yes, Britain does have more than, uh, say, 13 uh, Colonies, I should say the North American colonies from New Hampshire all the way as far south as Georgia. You know, Britain does have um, their subjects under the British monarch in the Caribbean and elsewhere around the world. But I think it's fair to say that when we think of subjects under the crown's um, authority, we often think of the 13 colonies, the 13 North American colonies. So, Yes, even before March 5th, 1770, and yes, despite um, hostile resistance. And it wasn't just a New England problem. I mean, there were plenty of Virginians who were um, totally appalled by this Stamp Act. There were um, people probably as far south as Georgia who opposed the Townshend duties. So we do have to be reminded that uh, it wasn't just one region that was opposed to the Stamp Act and the Townshend Acts. But opposition, not only towards uh, legislation, but opposition behind what happened in terms of the presence of troops before and leading up to uh, March 5th, 1770, especially amongst the unruly crowds whom uh, constantly found fault with everything the British uh, troops stood for, it would be fair to say that, um, that whatever... Um, presence of positive structure that did exist within the greater um, British Empire from um, amongst the 13 colonies uh, in the New England region, whatever uh, sense of um, positive structure there was, it gradually fell apart, or it started to gradually fall apart between uh, February 22nd 
And by the time March 5th arrives, that's when the, when the camel's straw really, really breaks to the point where fixing that straw that broke can't be um, fixed 100% back to what it was um, well before um, well before the uh, time frame of uh, February 22nd and March 5th, 1770. So yes, we, there are forces like uh, peacekeeping, government administrations that can bring people from within the greater, greater British Empire together. But those forces alone, it's a double-edged sword. I'm beginning to wonder if what, is un, if what has unraveled after March 5th, 1770 is like the equivalent of a nasty breakup or the uh, early beginnings of what will become a nasty breakup, almost like, you know, a divorce of sorts, irreconcilable differences. Had there been an agreement in 1767 amongst leading Massachusetts merchantmen to request locals from not buying imported goods? Okay, remember folks, the imported goods are the goods coming from England uh, to the colonies. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why is this important to talk about, especially in the epilogue, when it's kind of already been uh, mentioned from, say, an earlier podcast episode? Well, the reason I'm telling you all this now, because what we're going to talk about here, we're going to uh, get into some uh, good examples of families whom had some real tough choices to make. Tough choices that were for better and for worse not just impacting the families from within, but perhaps uh, the greater community who knew those families and saw how much riff went on in, in, in a particular family to the point where the family dynamics were no longer going to be the same for that particular family. And we you know, should keep in mind, folks, that... Uh, Community members during this time are really looking after one another. It's not a bad thing. Isn't that what is? Shouldn't that be an example of having uh, compassion? Shouldn't that be an example of, you know, being a pillar of your community of sorts? In other words, there are things that should not be tolerated. And if there is something going on that does present a red flag, like, say, public drunkenness, then yes, you need to address it right away. And the individual who is engaging in improper behavior does need to be held accountable, and he needs to um, needs to go before, say, his congregation or before his community to uh, confess his sins and get the help he needs. But of course, you know, we also need to be reminded. Like, I'm just using this as an example, folks, but we do need to be reminded of just how um, watchful and vigilant community. Um, members were, and that nothing went um, unnoticed, um, nothing went, um, how do I say it, nothing went unnoticed, but if there was something that did not look right, it had to be addressed as quickly as possible before it uh, became so bad to the point where the problem could not be resolved and it could um, have uh, long-term greater consequences for the community at, at stake. So, Nonetheless, uh, had there been an agreement in 1767 amongst leading Massachusetts merchantmen to request locals from not buying imported goods? Uh, the answer is yes. The agreement had been arranged by John Rowe, 
whose name has been uh, discussed uh, quite a bit in this uh, book podcast uh, topic series. John Rowe, as we all know, had been a one-time friend of um, Captain Thomas Preston, whom has now gone back to England. You know, he was the uh, commander of the 29th Regiment. Now, a a fellow by the name of uh, Ensign John Mellicott. Ensign is a rank, uh, a lower tier rank in the British uh, military. I'm not sure if that rank is still used in the American military today, but I do know that it's of uh, when someone is called an ensign, that's E-N-S-I-G-N, that is referring to a lower rank uh, status, but in the Army, it it would be um, high, it would be, it would be above uh, corporal. Uh, corporal is um, a step above uh, private, but ensign would uh, exceed uh, corporal rank. So Ensign John Mellicott, he was with the 29th Regiment, so he was under the command of uh, Captain Thomas Preston, part of the uh, larger uh, command uh, network. Ensign John Mellicott of the 29th Regiment got acquainted with a well-connected local Bostonian woman named Hannah Newman. Hannah Newman's uh, father was a merchant, so he obviously would have known someone like John Rowe and uh, John Hancock. Sadly, in 1765, though, Hannah's um, father died, which meant that Hannah's mother had to uh, run her um, late husband's mercantile business. In other words, somebody's got to keep keep the business going. And we do have to be reminded, folks, that um, given that in colonial days, um, the men were the primary uh, breadwinners. But if the husband died and his wife uh, was not only left a widow, but she's got children to raise, she has to find work. So there, so one of the best examples I can give you all is uh, tavern, uh, the case of taverns. I've learned uh, that there have been, I've, I've learned of situations where uh, when the husband of a tavern whom, whom was the head owner of the tavern died unexpectedly, leaving behind a wife and children, the uh, courts decided that it would be best to give ownership of the tavern to the wife given that the wife needed to provide a steady source of income and also she needed to provide every source of means there there, there was ready readily available at her disposal to support her children not just short term but long term so you know yes you know if you look in well virginia and most other colonies of the time yes there would have been um assistance in helping um most notably women whom were destitute or and poor, but at the same time, if a woman did have the means to be able to um, take over for her deceased husband's um, business, then she certainly had the opportunity to do just that. So for Hannah Newman, her mother ran her late husband's mercantile business, and it just so happened that the Newmans were related to a very, very prominent Massachusetts uh, legislator, and he at one time was uh, the assembly, um, he was the uh, Speaker of the House to the Massachusetts uh, State Assembly, and Thomas Cushing. 
Thomas Cushing's name will get mentioned again here soon, folks. But in the spring of 1770, Ensign John Mellicott wanted to marry Hannah Newman. But after March 5th, John Mellicott had to choose between Hannah and the Army. This is not an easy decision, folks. April of 1770 saw Ensign Mellicott write a letter to General Thomas Gage requesting resignation of commission. Gage provided him with a leave of absence to, to travel back to England, but Ensign Mellicott did the exact opposite, folks. In the summer of 1770, he went with Hannah Newman north to New Hampshire, where they married. General Gage did find out about this, folks, and he wasn't happy. So, long story short, it did take a couple of years to resolve this matter to where, over time, through other vital connections, John Mellicott and his wife, Hannah, did return to Massachusetts from England, where he established himself as a tavern keeper. So, hey, I, I think it's fair to say that we did have a good ending with this one, but yet, at the same time, I can't imagine the choice that he would have had to have made between whether or not I can, whether or not I want to marry um, this woman, or if I want to uh, continue my service in the army, knowing that things will never be 100% the same that they were um, prior to um, what led up um, per the events that led up to uh, the shooting on March the fifth, seventeen seventy. Hannah Newman Mellicott. She is the she was the niece of Thomas Cushing, whom would represent Massachusetts in the Continental Congress. You know, as much as we'd like to believe that Hannah and um, that, as much as we'd like to believe that Hannah's marriage um, was for the better, not everyone in her community saw it that way, folks. Hannah Newman often got frowned upon by former neighbors whom never forgot the fact that she had married a British officer. It's like that stain that just never goes away. Well, I think it might be fair to say that Hannah probably knew deep down that there were going to be certain members of her community that would have um, frowned upon this and would have uh, judged her severely to the point where it would have... Um, forever altered uh, a relationship. May, in May of 1775, just one month after shots fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, Hannah came um, home to visit her mother. Only for members of the uh, Committee of Safety to suspect she was gathering information for her husband. So in other words, some, some of these... Um, People, most notably if they were on the Committee of Safety, were led to believe that Hannah was um, spying in on um, those whom had uh, participated at Lexington and Concord uh, the month before. In other words, they saw her as someone that maybe just could simply be no longer trusted, given the fact that she had married a, um, a British officer. Before March 5th, 1770, it was easier for deserters, and of course when I say deserters, folks, you know, British troops, 
So it was easier for deserters, a.k.a. British troops, to blend in with the townspeople of Boston. But after March 5th, blending in was no longer seen as the cool thing to do. It basically became irrelevant. Blending in lost its uh, sense of trust. It lost its sense of um, sacredness. You, know, you can still try all you want to blend in. There might be some success, but it's not the same level of success, and it, not just of uh, success, but acceptance prior to um, the events that took place between February 22nd and March uh, 5th of 1770. Sometimes it only does take one incident for something drastic to so happen to happen to where whatever you could have done prior to the incident that was uh, innocent, uh, accepting, it was okay to tolerate, now all of a sudden can't do any of it. This one I found, uh, in terms of this other example, I found this one to be very uh, powerful. Ra rather, the next two, well, I hope I'd say the next two, the rest of them are powerful. Not that the first one I just shared with you all wasn't powerful. It was. But some of these other ones that I um, looked over and felt were important to share, they couldn't go unnoticed. So here we go, folks. Abraham Glossop, that's spelled G-L-O-S-S-U-P, U-P, pardon me, folks. <laughs> Abraham Glossop. He was a member of the 14th Regiment, so he would have been under Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple's command. He was married to wife Margaret. In 1771, one year after the Boston Massacre, the couple had their second child baptized at King's Chapel in Boston. Their child's name was Joseph, whom had gotten baptized. The baptism, however, was a private affair. I always thought baptisms were public affairs amongst the greater community, and while they were, the reason for this one being private was because Joseph was ill. Maybe, maybe Joseph's parents had enough common sense to realize that, okay, if we bring everyone else into the church for this event, who knows what kind of illnesses could be spread um, around because of the fact that our child's not feeling his best. So, they did a very smart thing by not uh, by not uh, bringing in the majority of the uh, congregation, or if not the majority, but all of it, because it would be bad enough if one or two members of the congregation got sick, but if 20 or more uh, people in the congregation got sick, uh, that we don't know how many people could have died. And it's not like you could just replace members of your congregation overnight who've passed away. So, although Joseph, their child, did survive his illness, sadly, Abraham and Margaret Glossop's marriage did not survive. They didn't divorce, folks, but in the summer of 1772, Abraham departed for St. Vincent in the Caribbean with the rest of the 14th Regiment. It was bad enough that he had to um, depart for St. Vincent. It's not so much that he, that he had to depart for St. Vincent, folks. It's the, the sad part is that he had to leave behind his wife and two young boys. 
November of 1772, Margaret and her two boys were sent to an almshouse, which is a shelter facility for those considered destitute and poor. Margaret and her two boys stayed there, folks, for two years, but sadly she got readmitted uh, back into an almshouse in December of 1774. 1777, her, um, her son Joseph, at age six, was sent by his mother to serve as an apprentice to a farmer in Murrayfield, which is now present-day Chester, Massachusetts, a hundred miles from Boston. Can you imagine sending your child off a hundred miles away, not knowing that you might not see him again? You know, it's not like Joseph can um, text his mom to say, Mom, I just made it here. Um, I look forward to hearing back from you here soon. It, it, that's not the way the world worked in 1771, folks. Joseph remained under the watch of his farm of this uh, farmer's care until age 19. Sadly, he uh, most likely did not have any vivid re- recollections of his father. Remember uh, learning about um, men named uh, Samuel and Josiah Quincy. Now. The Quincy family is related to Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife. So whenever you hear of the Quincy family, you can think of uh, Abigail Adams, given that she is directly um, related to the Quincy family. Brothers Samuel and Josiah Quincy, opposing attorneys from the Boston Massacre trials, saw extended family members engage engage in acts of unpleasantry involving politics in the aftermath of both trials. March 1776, the British evacuated Boston. The siege of Boston ended with up to 1,500 persons whose loyalties are tied to king and country. Samuel Quincy, believe it or not, folks, who was one of the lead prosecuting attorneys of the trials, folks, Samuel Quincy is amongst the the larger crowd of 1,500 whom fled Boston for Halifax, Nova Scotia, and onward to England. He left behind his wife Hannah and children, despite having written to family back home professing how much he missed them. Folks, he basically betrayed his family all in the name of loyalty. Samuel's property was seized by the state, forcing his wife and children to reside with a brother of hers. Samuel Quincy folks never saw his wife nor children again, all because of personal loyalty. It'd be one thing if you were single and you decided to go to England because you were a loyalist, but can you imagine just abandoning your family like this? It, it, to me, it just makes no sense. It's ridiculous. How can you do this? But, you know, the sad part is is that this kind of act behavior has been going on since the beginning of time. But to me, it would have been very, very risque and unheard of and, and a real shock in 18th century by 18th century standards. I don't know why I say that, but I just do. But given the fact that Samuel Quincy abandoned his family and never saw them again, 
To me, this is a great example of a famous phrase that we hear quite a bit of today, so close but so far away. Samuel Quincy may have prosecuted Captain Thomas Preston and the eight soldiers in both trials, but where exactly were his loyalties all along? In other words, is it fair to say that Samuel Quincy was only thinking about his own personal interests and not that of the greater community? I would say so. Um, to me, that's probably the best example I can give you all right there. But, but the bottom line is, is that Samuel Quincy may have been one person in the courtroom. Yes, he may have talked about why he didn't like the fact that the British troops fired upon the townspeople. Yes, he didn't like the didn't like the fact that in his eyes he thought the British troops had pre had engaged in acts of premeditation where they had planned to to kill members of the greater Boston community in terms of its uh, townspeople. Okay, if you think all that, that's one thing. But if you're engaging in other in other activities behind closed doors that. You know, we may not know about now, but we but we did learn about it after the trials had happened. And now it's like, where were you this whole time? And what do you know? So close, but so far away. Now, uh, who exactly is Hannah Fluker or Hannah Flucker, F-L-U-C-K-E-R? Well, she is a, um, a native a.k.a. local Bostonian woman, whom happened to be uh, the wife of a wealthy loyalist and mother to three daughters. Y'all are going to be in for some uh, interesting uh, treats here, or I should say real treats. All three daughters were married. One daughter married a lieutenant named James Urquhart from the 14th Regiment, Another daughter named Lucy married a gentleman by the name of Henry Knox, who was a bookseller on King Street. And I remember from a previous episode, uh, Henry Knox uh, confronted Captain Preston and uh, right before the shootings did happen on the night of March 5th. He, Henry Knox, 19, year old, 19 years of age, he, uh, he confronted Captain Preston. Warning uh, Preston not to have his troops uh, fire at the, at, the, at the townspeople. The third daughter, named Sally, married a British officer. Well, it seems like the daughters have done well, folks. But come 1775, there's bad news to report. There's a problem. It's not Houston we, we have a problem. The problem is that... Um, the problem is the following. Mrs. Hannah Fluker, we have a problem here. Loyalties. So, in 1775, there's a problem. Lucy's husband, Henry, was already partaking in the fighting against the British at Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775. Late 1776, the majority of the Fluker family departed Boston for Halifax, Nova Scotia, onward to England. Lucy and Henry Knox professed their loyalties to the Continental Army, a.k.a. Patriots. 
all three sisters, sadly, would never see one another again. Lucy Knox wrote repeatedly to her mother, but never once received a reply back. Well, think about it, folks. We don't have email. We don't have texting. So all we can do is write a letter and send it 3,000 miles across the ocean. I would have to think that um, one of Lucy's sisters did tell her where mom was residing in England and you know, think about it. we don't have uh, the white pages to look at. We can't, um, you know, we don't have a means of looking up and finding out, okay, this is where uh, my family member is living in England. But obviously it would be fair to say that one of Lucy's sisters did tell her where her mother was residing. So Lucy did try to reach out. So we can't give her, we can give her credit for having tried reaching out. But sadly, her mother never received, a, but Lucy never received a reply back from her mother. Uh, to me, that's just, uh, it's a very tragic thing, but it's also not the first time and nor is it the last time where people's loyalties have been split to where family members do not speak again to one another. Had the British Empire of the early 1770s been established along the lines of friendships and families? Yes, uh, what became so ironic during the early 1770s was an endless array of connections between British troops and Boston's townspeople whom learned to modify their differences to the best of their abilities by forging friendships for better, given many in Boston chose modified reforms over all, over all out severing of existing relations, even when the going got tough in the midst of unfair legislative measures passed prior to October 1768, like the Stamp Act of 1765 and the Townshend duties of 1767. So even when the going got tough in the midst of these unfair legislative measures that were passed prior to October 1768 when troops first entered the town, the dissolving of family ties from separations, quarreling, structural breakdown, or not just say structural breakdown, but structural breakdown in allegiances all contributed to a large, or I should say to a larger domino effect whose roots first got broken down on the night of March 5th, 1770, relations between troops and civilians. It really is amazing what a domino effect can do. Especially when all it takes is just, you know, that one incident. When, yes, there are other incidents. But as, you know, the saying goes, it only takes, you know, one incident to break the for the straw to break the camel's back. But at the same time, yes, you could, yes, you could have other incidents occurring. But at the same time, can there be other ways to prevent the worst case uh, scenario from happening? Absolutely. But if you don't have the right people in place to prevent it from happening, then the inevitable will happen, for better or for worse. Remember that fellow named uh, Henry Pelham who um, who came up, or rather I should say who did an engraving of the Boston Massacre? And remember he gave a copy of his engraving, or really I should say of his artwork, to Paul Revere? And what it... Didn't Paul Revere take advantage of Henry Pelham? In other words, he took the work that Henry Pelham had done and 
and came up with um, with a brilliant piece of work on his own end, but yet he took um, ideas and um, he took the work that Henry Pelham had done and used it to his own advantage to tell an even broader story, but yet isn't it fair to say that we that we learned a while back that even friends can take advantage of one another to where friendships could be ruined over time? Absolutely. So what became of Henry Pelham, uh, given the artwork he originally created depicting the Boston Massacre event from March 5th, 1770, got altered by his friend Paul Revere? What do you all think became of uh, Mr. Pelham? Well, I can tell you this much. Uh, Henry Pelham uh, did make the most out of his life. Technically, he made something of his life. He didn't sit back and, and boo-hoo and um, have every, everyone feel sorry for him. Besides working as a painter and engraver, Mr. Pelham um, performed work as a cartographer where he went about studying and practicing uh, map-making. It just so happens that Henry Pelham's father was married to Mary Singleton Copley. Why is uh, the last name of Copley so important? Well, there was a fella uh, by the name of John Singleton Copley. And it just so happens that his uh, mother was Mary Singleton Copley. John Singleton Copley and Henry Pelham were um, half-brothers. I know that John Singleton Copley was born in the late 1730s. So he is, I can tell you much right here, he is older than Henry Pelham. But John Singleton Copley achieved his fame by becoming a well-established portrait painter amongst the wealthy in colonial New England. So he did uh, paintings of General Thomas Gage. He also did a painting of uh, General Thomas Gage's wife, Margaret a.k.a. Margaret Kemble Gage. He also did a painting of uh, John Hancock, who was uh, one of Massachusetts's wealthiest merchants, especially given that uh, John Hancock became one of the richest men uh, of his time before reaching the age of 30. Even though he was not a wealthy man, Yes, Samuel Adams did inherit his father's um, brewery business. Yes, Samuel Adams squandered the fortune, just because, largely in part because he just was not a strong businessman. Or I should say he wasn't a shrewd businessman, but he made up for it with his uh, penmanship, his writing. But John Singleton Copley did a portrait of Mr. Samuel Adams. He also did a portrait of Dr. Joseph Warren, uh, the American Revolution's um, forgotten hero. And as I said from a previous podcast, the British, when they first had occupied Boston, had far more respect for Dr. Joseph Warren than they did for Samuel Adams. Dr. Warren catered, um, before we got the names of uh, patriots and loyalists, Dr. Warren represented people from both ends. He, uh, British uh, families, uh, families under the crown, uh, soldiers and, and um, their spouses and children, they all would go to see Dr. Warren 
and he would um, assist them in whatever way was necessary. But after uh, what happened on, um, but but what after but what happened between uh, February twenty second and March fifth of seventeen seventy forever uh, had a profound impact on Dr. Joseph Warren, especially when Christopher Sidere died on February twenty second. Uh, that was probably the beginnings of of Dr. Warren's um, going about changing his uh, loyalties or or knowing where his loyalties really needed to be, and that was on the Patriot side. So as for Henry Pelham, um, after the Boston Massacre incident, he became a loyalist. He left Boston with other loyalists around August of uh, 1776. He settled in London, where he got reacquainted with the Copley family. That's where John Singleton Copley uh, returned back to, folks. It was in England. And... Uh, for Henry Pelham, he went about teaching a handful of subjects from drawing, perspective, geography to astronomy. He married, um, he would later marry, and um, sadly his wife died in childbirth after uh, delivering twin sons. It's a terrible travesty because it happened a lot back then. Henry Pelham went on to become a civil engineer, folks, which was even um, more um, amazing. In 1806, uh, three years after the uh, Louisiana Purchase, um, what do you call it, after the Louisiana Purchase acquisition had uh, taken place, which was eventually resulted in the doubling of the United States' um, doubling the size of the United States, I should say. In 1806, Henry Pelham died. He died at the age of 58. And, of course, in today's world, we would think of uh, 58 as being very young. But it, in um, the 18th century and into the start of the 19th century, we might, it would probably be fair to say that maybe 58 was considered old age. But, sadly, uh, Henry Pelham died at the age of 58. And what I thought was really sad was that he drowned from a boat while overseeing the growth, or I should say the progress, of a defensive fort getting built um somewhere in Ireland. You know, it's just one of those reminders about how precious life is and uh, that we don't, you know, we don't always get to control how we wish to go. And uh, sadly for Henry Pelham, uh, he um, drowned. Think about it, folks. We didn't have any, you know, inner two. We, we didn't have any, um, how do you call it? We didn't have a, um, a ring, um, that could be thrown to us that we could put over our head and keep us afloat. We didn't have life preserver jackets back then. So, and we should um, keep in mind that if, um, if he drowned along a river, for example, he could have been unfamiliar with the river in the sense that there was an undertow that probably took him and therefore caused him to drown. Things like that do happen, even still to even still in the modern day world. Now, despite passing away just shy of two weeks after March fifth, why is Patrick Carr's testimony on his deathbed so important? Remember, folks, Patrick Carr was one of the five men who uh, was shot on March the fifth, seventeen seventy. 
Well, for starters, he admitted that he was not involved in any previous events prior to the troops firing on the unruly crowd along King Street. However, um, per Samuel Hemingway's testimony, he was the surgeon who operated on Patrick Carr and assisted him up until he died, just shy of uh, two weeks after the uh, massacre incident. Per Samuel Hemingway, he um, admitted that um, Patrick Carr stated directly to him that the soldiers were antagonized by the crowd to the point where after being hit more than once with dangerous objects, they fired their muskets in self-defense. Patrick Carr was the first to admit before the Boston Massacre trials even took place that civilians not soldiers, instigated the shooting. So that, to me, is quite a big first, folks, that someone had the courage and the decency, knowing that he was probably on the wrong side of the event, meaning that he was a part of the, um, of the unruly crowd, that, he was, that it took a, a lot of courage for him to say, hey, I think I know who really was instigating it the whole time. So let me go ahead and tell you now before before I pass away. Because he probably knew that he was on borrowed time. Patrick Carr's deathbed testimony, folks, was used by defense attorney and future president John Adams to clear six of the eight defendants of all charges. Although privates Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery were branded on their right thumbs for manslaughter, each man was forced to recite a biblical verse as part of their pardoning through benefit of the clergy. So when you, uh, in colonial times, if you received what's called benefit of the clergy, you were required to recite a biblical verse. But you also had to swear upon a Bible that you would not repeat the same mistake ever again. Yes, you knew that by being branded, people knew that you had uh, been found guilty of a crime at some point in your life, and that it would, um, and that it would uh, carry, um, and that it would take you wherever you went. In terms of that uh, reminder on your thumb. However, if another offense was committed, no more benefit of the clergy, folks. So, in other words, benefit of the clergy is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, request. But if you abuse it, you will not get any more um, benefit of clergy opportunities. What you'll get instead is death by hanging. So, we, you know, in other words, you better think twice before making the same mistake again. Where are Samuel Gray, Crispus Attucks, Samuel Maverick, James Caldwell, Patrick Carr, and Christopher Sidere all buried? Well, Christopher Sidere was the was the eleven year old boy who died on February twenty second. The other five were the men from uh, March fifth, seventeen seventy. It just so happens, folk. It just so happens that there is a um, a gravestone. At the granary, or at the granary, 
Burying Ground, which is Boston's third oldest cemetery dating back to, to 1660. So to think that cemetery first was first established 32 years before the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. 40 years after um, the uh, after uh, Plymouth Rock was uh, established, or uh, we should say Plymouth Plantation. But there is a gravestone at, um, at the Granary Burying Ground that contains uh, Samuel Gray, that contains the names of Samuel Gray, Crispus Attucks, Samuel Maverick, James Caldwell, Patrick Carr, and Christopher Sidair. All together. But the irony to, about this is that this uh, cemetery where they are buried is also the home to resting place of other Revolutionary War patriots from Paul Revere to James Otis Jr., including Peter Fanuel, for whom Fanuel Hall um, was named after, along with three Declaration of Independence signers in Samuel Adams, John Adams's cousin, John Hancock, and Robert Treat Payne. Our last uh, question for this um, for this podcast book topic series is the following, folks. Who should be considered uh, the first American killed in the American Revolution prior to April 19, 1775, being the day that uh, shots were first fired around the world at Lexington and Concord? Well, I decided it was best to, um, to compromise and um, come up with two people. For one, there's been constant debate over who really should be um, considered the first American killed in the American Revolution, but I've decided that it ought to be that that it, there are two people. They are Christopher Sider and Crispus Attucks. For Christopher Sider, at age 11, he was shot less than two weeks earlier on February 22, 1770. At the, hand, at the hands of customs officer Ebenezer Richardson, who, whose careless actions, yes, he was being threatened with objects, and yes, objects did penetrate his uh, house and broke glass windows, and his wife was knocked to the ground. Well, that was not right. What Ebenezer Richardson did next, yes, he was trying to warn the unruly crowd to back off of his property, but... He fired, and the bullet that he fired, folks, killed 11-year-old Christopher Sidair. And yes, Christopher Sidair was part of the unruly crowd, but still, the sad, the sad part is, is that an 11-year-old has lost his life. It's way too young. And because this 11-year-old boy died, a funeral was uh, conducted, and it was uh, sponsored by Samuel Adams. The funeral became a grand political event. As for Crispus Attucks, he was age four, around the age of 47 on, the, on March 5, 1770. He had voiced his opposition at the presence of troops, but did so without hurling objects at soldiers. And there were witnesses uh, during the trial of the uh, soldiers whom uh, did not whom uh, admitted that they had not seen addicts, uh, addicts, I should say, uh, throw objects at the troops. He may have uh, been in the crowd, as one witness said, that he was in the crowd, but he was not throwing anything. He could have, um, 
I don't know, he could have maybe threatened a soldier, like with a verbal remark. We don't know. But what we do know is this. Crispus Attucks sadly died fighting for something sacred, just like Christopher Sider did, or I should say just like 11-year-old Christopher Sider did. Both men died fighting for for the desire and dreams of securing freedom from oppression for present and future generations. For these two uh, fellas, they wanted to live in a world where... Um, where they would, uh, where their lives would not be governed by a force, who, um, whom in their eyes had no boundaries, whom um, dictated the show to where they felt that um, that the governed had no right or had no rights, had no voice. But I think it is fair to say that um, when it's all said and done with, that many of Boston's townspeople did have voices given that many of them had blended in with the troops. The troops blended in. They Both sides blended in to, to where there was compatibility. There was acceptance. There was um, modified relations. And yes, we can die fighting for causes all we want in terms of securing freedom from oppressive rule. But at the same time, prior to March 5th, 1770, Yes, there had been oppressive legislation passed that was unfair, that involved uh, improper means of consent. But did the troops ask to have objects hurled at them on March 5th, 1770? No, they didn't. But it happened. And did was it right for five people to die, even if they had thrown objects at the troops? No. Maybe not, but what we do know is that no matter how passionate we feel about about something, at the end of the day, facts cannot be altered. As John Adams once said, facts are uh, stubborn. They are stubborn, uh, tangible items that simply cannot be altered. They cannot be changed. Yes, you may be entitled, as the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, U.S. Senator from New York, said, one is entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And John Adams would have uh, agreed with that 100%. So yes, there would always be a sector of society who would never be satisfied with the end outcome. But the unfortunate end outcome was that whatever peace had um, been able to have uh, played out for as long as it had before February 22nd and going into March 5th, 1770, all of that peace was forever altered. There was no going back. A new course of direction um, had pursued, and that was uh, to secure freedom from um, oppressive rule for present and future generations. And yes, we can uh, say that Crispus Attucks and Christopher Sidair did set the tone, or I should say set the bar, for what would uh, lie in store um, as we... Uh, approached the mid-1770s as, shot, as uh, shots were fired around the world. Well, that concludes our uh, series uh, to the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. Thank you for being such uh, great listeners. And without you all, I don't know where I would have um, 
where I would be today, as I've said it before, but I sincerely do mean it. I look forward to being back on the air next time, and when we are back on the air again, we will be uh, we will be at it with learning something new that is exciting and relevant. Thank you for your time, as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.